RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new Starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shenzhou for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 296, Sanctuary. into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for morals and meanings and, and who knows, maybe messages, and decide whether we think the whole thing holds up today. This week, Sanctuary, the one where Kira makes three million new friends, then promptly loses all of them. John's got trivia coming up in a moment, but first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Um, Kind of a big episode, John. I'm assuming that there is a whole lot of trivia tied to it. There are one or two trivia, Ken. So here they are. For Sanctuary, the story credit goes to Gabe Esso and Kelly Miles, So Gabe and Kelly are married. Gabe is primarily a film historian, and he has some writing credits on Disney's Wonderful World of Color, Policewoman, and a handful of other shows. Kelly has just a few writing credits, but is primarily known as an actor. And she appeared on Policewoman, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Uh, Incidentally, that was the Flight of the War Witch, parts one and two, and Enos. And for those of you playing at home, that's the second time in less than a month that I've mentioned the Enos. That's that's amazing. I think the people in Enos don't even talk about it that much. I you don't know. You don't know, Ken. Uh, you haven't hung out with them. Uh, I sure wish that I could one day. Also, Kelly just happens to be the daughter of Vera Miles. Kind of cool. All right, the teleplay is by Frederick Rappaport. We've mentioned Frederick just once before, along with some of his many other writing and producer credits. Uh, He has just two total for DS9, though, and he was a friend of Ira Stephen Bear. Any guess? Do you remember off the top of your head, Ken, what his other, his singular other episode of DS9 was? I absolutely do not. It was Move Along Home. Wow. That that was his other episode of DS9. Holy cow, really? Yeah, for real. All right. Yeah. This was directed by Les Landau, quite the fixture around Star Trek. Uh, we last mentioned Les in our rewatch of Invasive Procedures, and we'll be seeing more of his work yet to come. Incidentally, Stardate 47391.2, that is the same exact Stardate as Next Gen Parallels. 
So when Worf was uh, experiencing all these changes on the Enterprise that he knew and loved, this is what was going on in DS9. That episode of TNG aired the day after this episode of DS9 aired. Now, we see one big Screen ship. Uh, it was used previously in TNG as a Promelian ship in the episode where the Promelians a long time ago had left those little like, uh, okay, it, oh, uh, oh, what's the phrase, Ken? Packlids. No, no. See, like if I'm a guy and I'm leaving behind something that's going to mess up somebody else. Breadcrumbs. Mm, oh, you're so close. Nope, nope. The phrase I'm looking for is booby trap. Oh, booby trap. Booby trap. Yeah. yeah, that is a- yeah. Boy, that's a callback. Yeah, yeah. If I were to leave behind a booby trap, oh. I'm going to do it in the episode booby trap. Yeah, be a, booby trap would be a good place to leave a booby trap. Let's talk about guest stars. Now, front and center is Deborah May as Hanik, and she's had recurring roles on everything from The Walking Dead to ER to The Larry Sanders Show. This is her first appearance on Star Trek, but she'll be back for one more appearance on Voyager. And Ken, this one is for you. She also had a recurring role on The Guiding Light. Wow, that's weird. That's so weird because I didn't know that, but I did look her up at one point and I thought, wow, she looks a lot like Kim Zimmer, who, of course, <laughs> had a recurring role on Guiding Light. Oh, the Guiding Light. That's wow. That's crazy, man. Kind of weird. All right. Andrew Koenig plays Tumak. Andrew appeared as a voice actor on G.I. Joe and most famously as Boner. That would be Kirk Cameron, Michael Seaver's friend on the sitcom Growing Pains in the 80s and Sadly, most of us know that Andrew, the son of Walter Koenig, died in 2010. Now, we meet two Bajoran officials. One is Sorad, played by Robert Curtis Brown, and the other is Rosan, played by Kitty Swink. Robert has just a massive resume in front of the camera. He has been a guest star on everything from Beverly Hills 90210 to Matlock to gigs on at least three different soap operas. And recently he has been recurring on The Handmaid's Tale. I like to think of him, though, as Todd from Trading Places. So say it with me. Looking good, Lewis. Feeling good, Todd. Now, Kitty Swink has made the rounds from Designing Women to The Young and the Restless, and she has appeared on Babylon 5, and she will be back for one more DS9 episode. Though she probably got to know that cast better than just through her two guest appearances, she is, after all, Armin Shimmerman's wife. Michael Durrell plays General Hazar. Now, Michael has a lot of TV in his body of work. He was recurring on Matlock, 90210, and others. He had guest appearances on Alienation, Alice, Knight Rider, and he played Harry Houdini in an episode of Voyagers. Now, two roles, though, that I would like to point out. He played Robert Maxwell in three different iterations of V in the 80s, and his first feature film role was in 1978's Thank God It's Friday with Jeff Goldblum. So there we are, one degree of Jeff Goldblum. And I was saving this one for last for a reason. The musician Varani is played by William Shallard, and you go back to the late 40s to find William's first on-screen roles, go up to the 1950s, and he was appearing twice, no less, on Space Patrol, uh, let's see, Commando Cody, The Lone Ranger, and dozens of other classic shows. Add to that so many voice acting roles, he was even an announcer on Enos, oh, boom, <laughs> trifecta. <laughs> Now, he kept working until 2014, and we lost him in 2016. 
It would take up the rest of the show to cover all the amazing productions he was a part of, and he has nearly 400 credits. But let's stop with just one more, though. In 1967, he was on board Space Station K-7 as Niels Barris in The Trouble with Tribbles. Meet the Scria. All three million of them. All at the same time. Prologue. Kira is distracted, not finishing the work she needs to do for Cisco, since she's been in a heated negotiation with the Bajoran provisional government. To add more to her plate, Quark wants Kira's attention too. He's got a problem. The great Bajoran musician Varani is playing in his bar and the crowds have followed, but they're so enraptured by the music, they aren't spending any money. Kira talks with Varani. Maybe he can play something less concert hall and more music hall. He'll see what he can do. And he hopes she'll do what she can do, bending the ear of someone on Bajor, to make a commitment to the arts and rebuild one of their great concert halls. But now Kira's back in ops just in time to see a ship coming through the wormhole. It looks bad. The reactor is failing and there are four people on board. For their safety... O'Brien beams him into ops where Cisco greets them, but they look terrified and confused. Act 1. The Universal Translator isn't able to translate for these new arrivals just yet, but they need medical attention. Since they seem to be more focused on Kira than Cisco, she leads the way. It's all a bit more confusing. They keep talking, but nobody on DS9 can understand them. They get really distracted on the promenade by knickknacks, and the matriarch of the group seems to be really distracted by a dress on display. Once in the infirmary, one of the three young men who is hurt gets attention from Dr. Bashir, but all of them are only comfortable if Kira reassures them that he's there to help. Finally arriving at their quarters, Sisko speaks the interstellar language of food and offers up some grub from the replicator. They all enjoy a bite, And the longer the woman in the group talks, the Universal Translator seems to pick up what she's saying. She is Hanik, and they are Screans from the Gamma Quadrant. They're desperate to get away. These four, plus three million others. Act 2. Hanik sits in ops with Kira and the other usual players. It comes out that the Screans are a woman-dominated society, which makes the men on DS9 just a little uncomfortable from the discomfort she clearly shows around them. She's just a farmer, though, not a political leader. She explains that her people have been searching for a cantana, a place of sorrow where they can bring joy through the wormhole as their sacred texts instructed them. The Screans have been chased, many of them killed by the Tirogarans, who ruled them for eight centuries until the Tirogarans were conquered by some other faction working for the Dominion. That rings a bell, and a bell rings later that night as Kira stops by to pay Hanik a visit. Hanik has woken up from bed with her two, uh, males, but Kira's got some news for her. A few hundred Screans will be joining them tomorrow, and since they're lacking a leader at the moment, It might be nice for Hanik herself to greet them. To help her along, Kira has a present. That dress Hanik was admiring in the promenade. That was before the translator was working, though. Hanik actually thought the dress was horrible. They share a laugh of agreement and relief. Yeah, it's hideous. Jake and Nog are having a little guy talk about the non-date Jake had with a Dabo girl. 
That's when they notice one of the newcomers, Tumak specifically, Hanik's son. He's picking at the leftovers on a table in the replimat after diners have left. They wave hello, but Tumak runs off, and the boys comment that it's a little weird, especially Nog, who chalks it up as disgusting, and the boy as an idiot. But let's make way for more Screen, shall we? Dozens of them showing up on the station, and Hanik is there to welcome them. The Screens are disheveled, in awe, overwhelmed, relieved. It's just a lot to take in. It's a lot for DS9 to take in, too. Yes, it might be a little chaotic, but as Cisco tells Odo, it's their first taste of freedom. Act 3. Nagasman goofing off. He apparently sprayed Tumak with something foul-smelling, which resulted in a chase, which resulted in Odo breaking it up. He's got Nog in the security office now, just waiting for a responsible adult to pick him up. Instead, Cork shows up and backs Nog into the kind of apology that really isn't an apology. And once the boy is gone, Cork says you can't blame him. These Screens are trouble. They're everywhere. They're not buying anything. And their skin flakes off. He says they'll run him out of business. And Odo doesn't really see the downside to that. At Cork's, Hanik is meeting with a group of her peers, a stern-looking group of Screen women who tell her that she must lead them the rest of the way, to Quintana. She doesn't know if she's got it in her, but Kira stops by with some words of encouragement, and the news that Sisko is still looking for a new planet for them to call home. Varani stops by their table, too, and he says he knows what it feels like to be displaced. He offers a gift, a holographic recording of a concert he played years ago. Hanik seems touched by the gift. She brings it back to her quarters, and with a renewed sense of peace on her face, she brings up the local star chart. It's less peaceful on the promenade where Nog encounters the Screen boys he was taunting before. This time it turns physical, with a fight breaking out until Quark can intervene. Sure, he stops the kids from fighting, but Quark can't help getting in a dig about Screen manners and making sure they know they're not welcome. Sisko and Dax have made a breakthrough in their search for a new world for the Screens, a little place called Draylon 2. Sounds ideal. Nice temperature, good soil, just a lovely place. When Kira breaks the news to Hanik and the others, though, it's not met with the reception she thought. Hanik says they know that Quintana, the planet of sorrow that they need to settle and bring joy to, is Bajor. Act 4 there are a lot of Screens on DS9 and in the airspace around DS9. Lots of them. And they need a place to immigrate. To answer that request, Bajor has sent Minister Rozan and Vedek Sorad to answer on behalf of the government. Kira's on her way to that meeting when she's stopped by Varani, who says his heart goes out to Hanik. Kira says it sounds like he thinks the decision has already been made, and he just says the reality of their situation is that Bajor is in no position to take on three million immigrants. At the meeting, well, that's pretty much the answer. Look, Bajor sympathizes, but they've just gotten rid of the Cardassians who really did a number on their planet. Hanik pleads, her people are farmers. They could bring new life to a desolate, uninhabited area of Bajor. Nope. Vedic Sarad says they've done projections, and it all turns up negative. They just can't. Down at the replimat, Jake is trying to make nice with Tumak. They might find some common ground, that Nog is... unique, 
and also that neither of them really relishes the idea of moving to Draylon too. Kira pays a visit to Hanik, but the apologies don't cut it. Hanik is in no mood to offer forgiveness, and Kira has lost a friend. Their conversation is curtailed by Sisko, though. He needs both of them and Ops immediately. Tumak has stolen a ship and is on his way to Bajor. Act 5. The ship that Tumak and his friends stole is in bad shape. There's a radiation leak and they aren't answering hails. Hanik pleads with them under Sisko's request to turn off his engines. There's no reply. The two Bajoran ships are on their way to intercept. Kira pleads with the pilot to not fire on the Skrian ship, but they have orders to not let anyone land on Bajor. Going up the chain of command, Sisko calls General Hazar. He explains the situation, too, that this is a boy who doesn't know what he's doing, and he's in danger. Tumak's ship opens fire and hits one of the Bajoran ships. The Bajorans fire back, but a second later, Hazar orders them to stop. It's too late. Even without hitting the Skrian ship, their phaser must have ignited the radiation leak. The ship and those boys are gone. The Skrians prepare to leave DS9. They're headed for Draylon 2, and Kira says her goodbyes to Hanik. Honestly, she thinks the Skrians would have been a burden, but Hanik says she'll never know. They're farmers. Bajor has a famine. There might have been an opportunity to help each other, but their fear and suspicion means they will never know. The end. You didn't mention this in the... Um in the trivia, but it was good to hear you say the term uh, "make way for Screens." Mm-hmm. That was actually a working title for this episode. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then, and then they saw how the episode ended, and they're like, "Yeah, make way for Screens" is probably not the best title for this yeah, episode. A little, little, little yeah. too light, you, yeah. you think? Sounding, you know. Well, it, it's funny. Can I just say it was a little behind the scenes bit about Mission Log? So last week, uh, as we do, you know, we record the end of the show. And we always say next week coming up is this, and we just type in the title "Sanctuary." And last week, I was like, "Hey." I'm going to make a bunch of Logan's Run jokes. And you're like, I'm going to make Hunchback of Notre Dame jokes. Guess what? No jokes. No jokes. Yeah, not many jokes. Well, not many jokes. I mean, not, not, not many. many not, not in the recap. Not really. You know. Oh, not in the recap. No, no, no. no. Stylistic, but but not, uh, not just a, a funny pop culture reference or something. No, no, not going to do that. But hey, uh, we, we can't discuss some light things here. Can we discuss for a moment... Verani playing the DS9 theme. Only if after that we can discuss how pompous he is. What is pompous? Well, well, pompous how exactly? Well, I mean, as a token of friendship, here is a picture of me. Well, it, it <sighs> is, okay, it, it is a holographic uh, uh, performance of his. Right, a, a video of him yeah. playing back in the day. It's like if it's like if we went to Vegas, you okay. and me, yeah. right? Which we've done, yeah. And we met people and we're like, oh, I, I sense we're going to be friends. Here's a recording of one of our shows. <laughs> right? As a symbol yeah. of our friendship, here's like my greatest hits. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just saying. We should start doing that. <laughs> Maybe. And yeah, for the Verani and all of us. You want to talk about him playing the DS9 theme now? No, I just, um, it, it's funny. I, I'm mostly amused when shows will work in a reference to that show. Mm-hmm. In in that fictional context. Now, sometimes I hate it. So, like, in the world of James Bond, in the universe of James Bond, to me, the James Bond theme does not exist, right? 
Right. Because that, that that's the thing that, that is just the introduction for the movie, but then you have to lose yourself in the world of that movie. Now, when James Bond uh, uh, types on the touchpad and it plays the theme to Close Encounters, it's like, okay, Close Encounters is a thing that exists in the universe of James Bond. Now, in this, like... I feel like if I've been watching Star Trek, just TOS or Next Gen, and you heard the theme to that show playing, I would have been very upset. It would have taken me out of it completely. But I watched this and I thought, okay, now I have a new context for the DS9 theme. The DS9 theme is a variation on some classic Bajoran music. And and it just happens that Varani is there to play that in this episode. So I thought that worked very well. Interesting. Didn't hate it. Didn't hate it. You know who didn't hate it? Morn, because Morn is crying, and yeah. and Morn has a date who is there to console him. You assume Morn has a date. It's possible that Verani is just that good. Oh, the Verani's okay. the Verani's catalog. You know, you, you play. Who are you going to play? It, it's a makeout night. Mm-hmm. You got three choices. You know, you got uh, you got Sinatra. Yeah, you got <laughs> uh, you got Mathis, or yeah. you got Verani. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's what you got. One of those might be made up, by the way. Nice, nicely done. Uh, oh man, here's another time where we're trusting the replicators. This time to make food for people we can't even communicate with at first. So to me, it's like here, here is a tray full of breadsticks. I, I hope your species is not gluten intolerant. Right. Because <laughs> we, we have no idea this is what we're going to give you. And, and by the way, Cisco ordered up seven of those. By my count, there are only six people in that room plus Odo. So somebody gets seconds. Might be Cisco. He might have been thinking ahead. He's like, make seven. Tell you what, just go ahead and put in eight of those. <laughs> I might get hungry later. Yeah. Um, there's a funny bit uh, where uh, Hanit keeps saying, they're on the other side of the eye, the tunnel. But it takes Odo to say, I think she means the wormhole. <laughs> like literally oh. three minutes before we saw them come through the wormhole and they're like, uh, no tunnel. I just, hmm, no, don't, doesn't ring a bell. Yeah. The next week you see them standing by the window going, doesn't look anything like an eye to me. Yeah. Not you. <laughs> right. Neither a tunnel. Yeah. Uh, Odo says that DS9 only holds 7,000 people. And mm-hmm. by last count, they were like, 300 yeah. or something on the roster. Yeah. So again, you can just wander for days and not see another person. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> I, I find that 300 hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? Um, oh, and, and we got introduced, boy, I hope we get the further adventures of Plix, Tix Plix. Uh, because what, wasn't he one of Superman's enemies? Oh, he was one of Superman's worst enemies. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, there was Lex Luthor. There was mm-hmm. Brainiac. And there was Blake's ticks. Yeah. Yeah. Superman yeah. goes on for a while. So it does. You know, by yeah. the 24th century, uh, Blake's ticks Blake is absolutely one of the, uh, one of the worst. Man, I hope the fan sets guys do a, a, a pin for uh, Blake's ticks Blake. I would, I would be lined up to get that. Hey, and uh, on a serious note, though, uh, that final showdown moment in Ops where everyone is watching the play-by-play of the Bajoran ships taking out the Sprean ship, that is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the pacing, the editing, the music, it, it builds the tension in such a perfect way. And, and it's kind of, you know, you, you say it's a Shakespearean thing, but it's really a theatrical thing very often. And we've seen it done on Star Trek before, where what we see is the reaction, not the action. 
And this is probably the best example of that kind of, of writing that I can think of that we've seen on Trek so far. You know what is great about Quark in this episode? Nothing. We'll dive deep into Sanctuary in a moment, but first... Oh, but first, a word from Eagle Moss in the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. They're flying in to take over your mantle, or, or your bookshelves, or your desk, or uh, all the flat surfaces in your home. That's what they're doing. All the flat surfaces. The Eagle Moss ships can has all the flat surfaces. And here's why. They're excellent starships. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, made from just, oh, weighty, solid, die-cast metal and ABS materials. And of course, they're based on the CG models used in the production of Star Trek Discovery, because yeah, we're talking about the Discovery Starships collection. Yeah, it's really hard to overstate the level of detail and accuracy on these, and especially because they are big ships. The USS Shenzhou, that would be NCC-1227, is nearly eight inches from front to back. Now, of course, it comes with that display base. It comes with the collector's magazine. That's one that has behind-the-scenes info as well as the in-universe info about that ship, original design sketches, and a breakdown of the technology on board. Now, the first ship in the collection, the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is available to subscribers for only $9.95 with free shipping. And you can start that off at EagleMoss.com slash Discovery Starships. And when you do that, additional models will follow, including the Discovery herself, the Europa, that newly released Vulcan cruiser, the Solcar class. Now, those new ships will arrive monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. Subscribers are also entitled to free gifts worth over $100, and you can cancel your subscription at any time. Full details can be found at eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. Now, if the subscription thing isn't your thing, if there's one particular ship you want, hey, you can do that too. You can either pick it out online, shop.eaglemoss.com, or you can go to your local comic book shop. Uh, you'll be picking them up at either of those places for the regular price of $54.95. But again, if you wish to subscribe, go to eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. And again, a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. So I think we're like almost done, right? Yeah, we can just pack it up. And uh, I've got things to do later. So. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a fairly light show with, uh, with not a lot going for it. Uh, yeah, so that's the last of the jokes. Um you know, at the beginning of the last segment, I said that, you know, we, we talked about what we would joke about and then we didn't. Um, we, we picked some other kind of light things to pick out. Now we've arrived at this section where we really dig deep. And I just, you know, watching this show several times, I got a little bit overwhelmed because I feel like there are so many angles. There's the stuff happening with Nog and Jake and not just 
the Nog stuff that deals with Quark and, and the, that ties into the plot with the Strians. There's what's, uh, uh, there's the, the sexism angle to talk about here where, where you flip the tables and it's the men in the Strian society who are treated poorly here. And, and even just, I, I wrote down lines like, uh, just uh, Hanik saying, please do not, please do not understand. We love our men. You know, uh, I just, please do not misunderstand. misunderstand. Right? Sorry. Yeah. We love our men. I, I feel like we could do a segment on that. Uh, of course, the major plot we're going to talk about here with immigration, et cetera, we'll, we'll discuss that. Um, and if you're in the position of the Bajorans coming out of this horrendous occupation and then opening yourself up again to new people, there are so many things that could be an entire podcast, could be a book. Um, but we really had to kind of narrow it down here. So I say that because I know that you've got some notes that are important to you. I've got some notes that are important to me. I sort of want to give our audience a heads up. We're not going to hit everything. No, we can't. Because I don't think we can in our format. I don't I don't think so. Yeah, because, I mean, there were just so many. Uh, this episode's like an onion. I mean, you, yeah. just, you peel a layer and there's just another layer. Not just like it, but just as... Um, uh, pungent? I don't know the best mm-hmm. way to say it. It's, I probably shouldn't have tried that analogy. Maybe you could say like the lasagna. There's a layer <laughs> and there's another layer and another layer and it's different, but it's part of the whole. Whatever. Um, uh, Quark's racism is disconcerting. That's that's sort of where I want to start. And it's weird to me that you can have one of your central characters be like totally racist <laughs> in an episode. And you're like, okay, let's hurry up and get that part out of the way. Mm-hmm. Because that's not really what the episode is about, but I found that part very disconcerting. And and what's weird is I would honestly think that a Ferengi would be among one of the greatest diplomats in the galaxy, right? Because mm-hmm. they want something from everybody. They want to be able to deal with everyone. And maybe they're not the most trustworthy, but at the very least... I wouldn't think that they would be dismissive of anybody because even if the screens don't have money right this minute, they might have money at some point. And I got to figure one of the rules of acquisition must be about playing the long game. Yeah, you, you would think. But again, as I brought up sort of half jokingly, half serious uh, one time when we were talking about the return of the Nagus, you know, there's a lot of what the Ferengi do that to me is talk. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what they actually accomplish and, and even look at a guy like Rom who has skills, but he doesn't necessarily have the smarts to apply those skills. So like you're saying here, this is a great opportunity for, uh, for Quark, uh, especially, especially Quark reporting to the Grand Nagus about making deals with people in the Gamma Quadrant. Well, here you go. These are three million people from the Gamma Quadrant who need something. Mm-hmm. Time, time to go make a deal with them. You'd think, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, even like even just that aside, just I mean, just his his open and and blatant racism uh, was ghastly. And I think well, I think we have this whole thing where it's like, well, but it's Quark, and so you know he's mm-hmm. ghastly. Well, sometimes, but sometimes he's not. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm still having the problem. It's not exactly a gumpification, but it kind of is. Of like, okay, do we hate him? Do we like him? Can we trust him? Who is this character in the end? And, yeah. and it's, it's like, I'm, I'm, we're what, like a, almost a season and a half in now. And it's like, okay, Quark is just going to be whatever we need him to be today. 
He's always going to be working an angle, but that's Ferengi, and that's fine. It's funny that uh, we had a, a listener who wrote on our Facebook page, and I assume writing to us about one of our discussions rather than aiming it to the writers of DS9. But the comment was something along the lines of, so, so what is he then? Is he just a bar owner or is he this murderous mastermind? You know, and, and my, my thought is, well, he's whatever they want from week to week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, he really is because they are gumbifying him, as we said with McCoy in the past, to fit whatever they want. Um, I actually, I, 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 since you brought up Quark and the racism here right off the bat, I actually want to skip to, something that I had written down about that specifically. Okay. Because we, I, I don't know if you saw the emails that we got before we recorded, and I dutifully did what I do anytime that happens, which is I skim them without trying to absorb it, mm -hmm. uh, because I don't want my comments to really reflect that. I want my comments to be my own. But there is a part that was something really specific. And it was from an email from Jason. Thank you, Jason. Uh, your notes were awesome that I do want to focus on because it ties to that. It, it ties to what you're saying about Quark. He said that for him, the something that's missing here is the demagoguery that often emerges when immigration becomes an issue. And I agree. We didn't get that far with the Bajorans since everything was sort of in a condensed time frame. And because what we were given was just their very logical decision making. But what we did get is something that I thought was absolutely chilling to, to reflect what you're saying here, Ken. And that's how simple personal misunderstanding and prejudice leads to exactly that. So for an episode that has so much going on, it's easy to overlook that plot line with Jake and Nog and Quark after Nog harasses Tumak. Quark just plays it off. He didn't, he doesn't expect an apology or a growth moment out of Nog, of course. And to me, it was so chilling because it illustrates that exact moment when it becomes okay to marginalize another group. Mm -hmm. So it's so simple for Nog to poke fun and then even simpler for Quark to okay it, for there to be no correction. And I can just see this playing out a million times, or in this case, three million times more. The other becomes totally dehumanized, scapegoated, and then they're a very easy target for that demagoguery Jason was pointing out. Uh, so I, I agree, you know, things don't play out that far in the story, but we saw on screen something that was so, for lack of a better word, so human. And that's that moment where bigotry is born. You know, we, we can almost, we can almost chalk it up to Quark and say, well, yeah, Quark is going to be whatever Quark is going to be. And it might be different from one week to another, but if you have a character do that, it's probably going to be Quark, just the way things are, are going to play out. What's so heartbreaking is that it happens to Nog because Nog isn't given a chance by anybody to make things better. If Cisco had been the one down there to pick up Nog, it would have been a very different conversation. And, and I wish we had gotten that conversation. You, well, and you kind of wish Jake had as well. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, Jake and, and Nog have already been a, a shining example of, because Cisco was totally racist against the Ferengi, 
Mm-hmm. He completely was. And he assumed that, you know, his kid hanging out with the Ferengi was going to be a bad influence on the Ferengi. And it turns out his kid, I mean, I'm sorry, his kid hanging out with the Ferengi was going to be a bad influence on Jake. And it turns out mm-hmm. that Jake hanging out with Nog was a good influence on Nog, except, yeah, not this week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, too, when you talked about the sexism thing earlier, and then because the way you ran your sentences together, he's like, there's what's going on with Jake and Nog, not just, you know, the whole uh, thing with Nog and Quark, uh, and then the whole you know, sexism thing. I mm-hmm. thought you were actually talking about the fact that Nog's sitting there going, Adabo girl, learning. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's right. like, yeah. Yeah. there are lots of, there are lots of ways in this episode that Nog sort of goes, um, uh, poorly, which yeah. is too bad because Nog has actually been a good character. Now, I think probably what they were trying to do was they were trying to, well, I don't know what they were trying to do, honestly. And, and we'll yeah. get to that in a bit. Um, nobody's, nobody's good to the Scria <laughs> except for, except yeah. for Cisco, oddly yeah. enough, because he finds him a decent place to live. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know, man. I walk away from this episode very... We're not to the part where we walk away yet. Um, so, Quintana is seemingly a religious belief among the Scria, right? Mm-hmm. That they will bring joy to a planet of sorrow. Um, I think Kronos is a pretty sorrowful place. Uh, probably more sorrowful than Bajor in a lot of ways. I think Romulus is a more sorrowful place than Bajor in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, Bajor certainly is sorrowful, but there are lots of sad planets that they could go to. And I don't think they would be expected to be, you know, welcomed <laughs> on Kronos yeah. or on or on Romulus, for that matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. You deciding that you get to live on a planet inhabited by someone else based on a religious belief just seems kind of odd to me. Because um, you're literally deciding, you know, that something's right based on a legend, because they even say, I don't even think they said it was religious. I think they said it was, it was like a legend or I can't remember. But basically, they were saying it's, it, it, they were, what was it? 800 years, mm-hmm. eight centuries, I believe they were inhabited, but mm-hmm. they believe in this, you know, Cantana place. They're going to go make things better someplace else. Um, and it's, 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 the problem that I have with this episode <laughs> is, it feels like we're supposed to apply the anti-immigration or xenophobic sentiments faced by the Scria to our world today. Mm-hmm. But but where, where that's difficult is there are literally countless planets for the Scria to go to, right? Yeah, yeah. Because like, like when people come here, we're like the best thing going, or at least we were. Up mm-hmm. until, you know, a, a certain point in our in our history. And and mm-hmm. and no doubt we had problems. There has always been a segment of the US population that has an anti immigrant bent. Irish need not apply. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not a thing I made up. <laughs> that's a yeah, thing that right. used to be. Right. And that's and even though if you'd call that racism or if it's just nationalism or if it's just, you know, I don't know what that is exactly. But, I mean, we're where people go because there's not a lot else. The Scria literally have an entire galaxy to go to. Okay, a whole quadrant of the galaxy because they're trying to get out of the Gamma Quadrant. But, I mean, this this where this episode gets problematic for me is they've decided that that's where they belong without really consulting anybody else. There's almost like a... There's almost like a... <laughs> There's almost like a 
why don't you want to go out with me thing going on mm-hmm. with the Scria, especially at mm-hmm. the end. I mean, look, she's not wrong. They are farmers. They may have been able to bring prosperity to a part of Bajor, but, you know, it's like a guy, like, you know, why won't you go out with me? I could really be something. We could be great together. Uh, you know yeah. what? I mean, it's it, it's a weird episode because so much bad stuff happens to the Scria. When we watched this side of paradise, <laughs> yes, people thought that I was like making a big case for drugs, right? That I'm like, yeah, drugs are totally fine because that was the part that people took away from that episode. The part that mm-hmm. they kept leaving out was the fact that everybody was completely happy. Everybody was being healed. Everybody would have lived forever if they had been able to stay on that planet. All mm-hmm. they could focus on was the drug bit, right? And the problem that I had was basically Star Trek had set up an impossible situation where all of the drugs that these people were taking were actually really awesome. We're making yeah. them better than they were ever going to be. It's the impossible situation of Star Trek that is problematic for me in this one. There are so many planets, including one that's being offered to them. And, and, and like, but for you to just show up and say, no, 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 I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to be there. Based on what? Well, this story, my grandfather's grandfather's grandfather started telling him some time ago. It's, yeah, if uh, if you know anything about me, Ken, you, you might know that I have some strong feelings about using religious justification to do anything that uh, uh, displaces other people or, <laughs> you, you know, uh, uh, essentially extending or forcing someone on others just based purely on this mythic belief. Um, I, I think it's insane and wrong. Um, and, and as you're saying, there's a big problem here with this episode because Cisco, in the name of the Federation slash Starfleet, is truly doing everything he can to help them out. Look, they have resources, they have ships, they're even looking in uh, theoretically the same star system or or nearby star system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds like a great place. And and who's to say that that isn't Cantana? You know, we're not talking about a planet that their that their species had grown up on for tens of thousands of years in the gamma quadrant they're done they're right. done with that place right they have to move on um nor are we talking about um the episode where the traveler comes and picks up wesley i can't remember which that was uh, oh sure the the uh, journey's end journey's end thank you yeah um, I mean, that was that was a tribe of, of Native Americans who had, had gone many places and finally found a place and had been there for quite a while before they were being evicted. I mean, this mm-hmm. is just, this is literally just one person, well, a couple of people from Bajor were nice to Hanik, and so she decides that's absolutely where she needs to be, based yeah. on, again, you know. Now, all of that said, the Bajorans are absolutely terrible in this episode. They are horrible in this episode. We can't let you come in because something might go wrong and then we would feel obliged to help you. You know, and they're like, oh, we won't ask for your help. Well, do you really think we could stand around and do nothing? That was actually what she said. Do you really think we can stand around and do nothing? Uh, Said the Bajoran uh, minister. And so the fact that they might end up feeling like they have to do something is justification to not do anything. And that's reprehensible. It seems yeah. to me, except that there are a million other planets they can go to. I mean, that's it's it's the impossibility of Star Trek that actually makes this. Well, I think the impossibility of Star Trek totally made. I'm I'm sorry, I'm jumping to the end, aren't I? Didn't mean no, to. Hey, yeah, it totally made yeah. made an episode of Star Trek just like this one did. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. 
It's one of the things that I'll point out that I think was a a clever thing in this episode. I I was originally going to put a note about the hair and makeup in this episode. Mm -hmm. And and that would just be a thing that I would throw in the last segment like, oh, isn't it weird? You know, Um, because it is weird. And and it's not great. It's not this this complex, intricate. It's not like a new Klingon or something like that. But it, it's perfect thematically for this episode. And, and I uh, that's the reason I wanted to point it out here because it, it's a design choice that plays into our experience of the episode. It's simplified. Uh, just in terms of the technique, so they can make up a lot of people at once because you have a lot of people from the uh, from the, those immigrant ships, and, and the result is just sort of this strange, off-putting look. You know, pe- people that you've kind of erased some features and given the flaking skin, and they're kind of pale. I, I feel like we're supposed to be challenged by that by people who look just enough like us, but kind of bland, disheveled, and messy. And they're they're harder than to see as us, quote unquote, us right away. And I thought it was a, another clever thing that was uh, done with the language barrier at the top of the show. At first, I just thought, okay, this is a tech gimmick. When I watched this for the very first time, oh, the translator isn't working. This will be fun to work through. But I like that we put a barrier up there again to challenge us again, quote unquote, us, us, the audience and us uh, proxied on the screen there to see how far we could actually be pushed to try to see the humanity in someone and accept them as ourselves. So uh, there's a bit of a shout out there to the, uh, the, the, the technical and production decisions that I thought played very nicely into the theming of the show. It's interesting that you mentioned the part about the translator not working because I thought it was just a, a perfect illustration of uh, Picardian diplomacy. Mm. Mm-hmm. If, if you can't reach an understanding, you talk and you talk and you talk some more until you begin to understand each other, which yeah. they literally yeah. did yeah. inside of about seven minutes in this episode, which was, uh, yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or not. Uh, but if it wasn't, um, it still seemed to me like that, uh, overlaid nicely with that idea that, uh, that we watch for a long time on next gen. With decisions made, and friends, less friendly, it is time to see what we can take from Sanctuary. Sanctuary, John. Sanctuary. I guess we know why they called it Sanctuary, because it seemed that the uh, the Skria were, were, were seeking Sanctuary. Although then the writers went ahead and wrote them, you know, like, first of all, the people who had been holding them uh, are dead now, killed by uh, eh, the Dominion. Mm. Have we heard of the Dominion before? You know, just uh, just a reference. I think Quark was going to do some business with them. He wanted to do some business with them. Oh, that's right. Well, the Nagus actually wanted to find out more about the Dominion. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So we have heard about them. That's weird. What do you think? Is that you think that's going to be a thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. It's it's, it's great. Um, yeah, they're not really seeking sanctuary though, because they're not being chased anymore, and there are all these other places they can go. 
so I understand why they called it Sanctuary, but I'm not 100% certain the title works. But, you know, we talk about the title. Mm-hmm. And so there's the title. And now we get to the really fun part where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings and trying to figure out whether the episode holds up. Um, do you want to start with that one? Does the episode hold up? I think we should. Yeah. I think that has uh, served us well. Um, yeah, it, it holds up. And honestly, one of the reasons is that there is so much going on here in 45 minutes. And again, I know that we left out certain points, and I wish that we could just pick apart every scene on its own. Um, Varani is a minor player here, but even where he's coming from could stand some more analysis. He's got some great lines um, that I, I think are really worthy. So yes, yes, it holds up from a production standpoint. Uh, just technically, it's very impressive. It's crowded. There's a lot of activity on the station. Uh, it, it's a bottle show. You know, they do everything on their standing sets, uh, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel small. And no scene is wasted. Everything that happens is absolutely serving the plot and and serving the discussion that well that we get to have and hopefully that everybody is having when they watch this episode so uh it holds up really nicely um how about you ken um from a production standpoint i would say it holds up yes uh, for all the reasons that you talked about uh, the acting is good the makeup and costumes are interesting they're similar enough that you recognize these people and yet they're different enough that you can easily cast them as the other, mm-hmm. which uh, certainly um, Quark did. And uh, eventually the Bajorans did as well, I think. Um, we need this answer handed to us. Yeah. We need this answer handed to us. To really deliver the message that they wanted to deliver, I wish that it actually has been an episode that featured anti-immigrant or xenophobic sentiments of one group of Bajorans against another group of Bajorans. Because then we'd be able to look at it more and go, well, they're all, they're all Bajorans. How could they be that way? Right? Mm-hmm. They were all occupied, but now the occupation's over, and so now they're going to go back to their old hatreds, which it turns out we didn't even know they had this, but they had it. That's how I would like to see it done. Where I get upset with this whole we're not handing you an answer thing is, you know, the people who, I don't know, it feels to me like Star Trek in the end should not leave you wondering whether the Bajorans were correct. Infinite diversity and infinite combination. It's our differences that make us stronger. By working together, we can accomplish anything. These are Star Trek messages. And yet I can see people watching this episode saying the Bajorans are right in this case. Mm-hmm. And this is where this episode gets really bumpy for me. In the Star Trek context, there are whole other uninhabited planets to which these people can go and probably get help from the Federation as well, right? Mm -hmm. With those parameters set, the Bajorans are right. With those parameters set, the Bajorans are absolutely right to say, no thanks, we got plenty, or we got problems of our own, right? We don't have those parameters here. And it worries me that someone might walk away from this episode saying, see, we don't have to help people in trouble because, you know, sometimes that's tough or it might be costly or their differences make them gross or whatever. Nobody even argues with Quark about his racism. Yeah. Quark is standing there with Odo and Odo's like, whatever, 
right? And as you pointed out, a child under his tutelage does something racist, and Quark makes him say that he's sorry, but that's only for Odo to hear him say that he's sorry. That's it. Mm-hmm. And because there's like a there's a wink and a nod between the two of them, you know, with a, say you're sorry. I am? Oh, I am. Mm-hmm. Say you'll never do it again. I won't? Oh, right, I won't. Whatever. He's going to be able to say and do whatever he wants to as far as this goes after that. Um, when we were watching Discovery, and look, man, I don't remember your name. I'm sorry. I love you. Please don't stop listening, okay? <laughs> when we were watching Discovery, we had somebody send us a message asking whether genocide would be such a bad thing where the Klingons were concerned. When we were watching season one of Discovery, somebody wrote in. Somebody watched Star Trek and wrote in saying, eh, genocide might not be the worst thing in this situation. Because Discovery served us so much moral ambiguity, right? Until the very end. You got to the episode 15 was when somebody said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> right? Hey, Maybe we, a we, couple have the of same un- thing. we have the same thing about the Borg, though, too. Same thing came about the Borg. Whether no, we no. should have just shut, Sa- down, shut okay. down all the Borg. Except Star Trek did not leave you questioning that at the end. No, no, exactly. But, but I'm saying, the, the, yeah, the question still came in. Right. Yeah. Okay, yes, that's yeah. true. But Star Trek made its case. Mm-hmm. Other people may say that Picard was wrong. Other people may say that they disagree with Star Trek at that point. But there's nothing to disagree with in what happened in this episode. I feel certain that you could show this episode to a political representative today. And a lot of them would say, see, even Star Trek knows you can't help everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. I think we need Star Trek to answer questions like this, because it turns out sometimes we need Star Trek to hand us the answer, point blank and out loud. Unless you think the Bajorans were right, in which case you don't agree. But then I go back to what I said before. I'm not sure what show I'm watching. And I understand it's, oh, well, things are difficult. Yes, things are difficult. We aim higher. I mean, that, that was one of the things that Star Trek always did, was it showed you how high you could go. And 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 this says, boy, things are tough, huh? See you next week, kids. Yeah. And that's 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 troubling to me. Because as I said before, I think the Bajorans were absolutely reprehensible in this case. And infinite diversity and infinite combination is a thing that Star Trek, you know, purports to believe in. But in the end I wish I mean I wish maybe we had heard the fight that went on supposedly in the Council of Vedics. I wish we had heard from somebody who did not agree, because all we get is well, moving it, on down the line, moving it, on down the road, get out of here. Here's the thing. It, it, is Itic a Star Trek thing, or is it a Starfleet Federation thing? Because the Bajorans aren't Federation, and Cisco, all Cisco had to do in this episode is pop up and go, Draylon 2, remember Draylon 2, I found a planet, it's called Draylon 2. And then mm-hmm. we don't have to hear from Cisco anymore. Um, I think we have to have that scene at the end. Thank goodness we have that scene at the end where Hanik dresses down Kira and says, you blew it. And and if we didn't have that scene, I think this episode would be even more ambiguous than it was. Because, look, we, we know what we're going to get out of the Bajoran representatives. We know that that's going to be a short but tense scene. But it has no real emotional impact until we have that last confrontation between Hanik and, uh, and, and Kira. So I think there, there's something good in that. By the way, 
You know how sometimes I like to save a little trivia nugget for the end of the show, uh, just to, to throw it out there after you've uh, made a, a point about kind of wrapping up the morals, meanings, messages. Um, mm-hmm. I save this little nugget. Uh, the original script for this had a happy ending. Um, it was the one in which the Screens moved to Bajor and uh, succeeded. But it was decided that uh, they liked the drama better, the the quote-unquote realism of the drama of not having that easy answer and not having it all work out in the end. And uh, and I feel like by sharing that with you, uh, well, one, yes, somebody originally wanted to have that in there, and two, it just broke your heart <laughs> because we decided to not go with that. They went yeah. more for the uh, they went more for the private little war version as opposed to the rest of Star Trek version. When you ask the question, is it Star Trek or is it Starfleet? Mm-hmm. Is it Star Trek or is it Federation? that you even get to ask that question or have to ask that question. I'm, I'm going to go back to what I said before. I, I don't know what we're watching right now. It's not, I mean, this is something that takes place in the Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not Star Trek. I'm saying, I don't know if it is for me personally at this mm-hmm. point. It's, There are people who watch this episode who totally get where the Bajorans are coming from. And look, I get where the Bajorans are coming from, but what we've always watched were people who did the hard thing. Mm -hmm. And now what we're watching is people. Yeah. And I could be watching LA law for that or whatever (laughs) else was contemporary at the time. I could be watching people being people. I could be watching Hill street blues. I could be watching any number of things. It was just people. Star Trek, everything that has had Star Trek in the title to this point has been people doing their best, people being their best. This is just people in space. I'm slightly more okay with this than than where you're landing here, only because we have that last scene. Because if we hadn't seen, if we hadn't felt Kira feel like she blew it. I, you felt, you, I'm sorry, it. you mm-hmm. felt like Kira felt like the Bajorans blew it at the end. The last yeah. thing she says to Hanik, Hanik, the last thing she says to her is, yes, I believe your people would have been a burden on my people. And what Hanik says is, you know what? We're farmers. We might have been able to help you. I guess we'll never know. I did not see anything change in Kira at that point. Hmm. Did you? I, I, I think she had to absorb the emotion of what just happened. And I think that, look, there's nobody who's going to go back. She's not going to chase after that ship and go, wait, wait, the Bajoran government made a mistake. Come back, all three million of you. No, that's not going to happen. But I think that she she was struggling with the idea to begin with. She was even surprised when Varani said, oh, yeah, this is a done deal. She she was like, well, well, wait a minute, but but no, it's not it's not a done deal. They had to debate it. They had to talk about it. We don't know what the answer is going to be. I think Kira was sort of the one who was at least somewhat in the middle, even if she could accept the idea that it would be a burden, but it would be a burden that they were willing to at least at some point to try to see if they could make it go. See, it's interesting. You and I remember that scene differently. Because Verani actually said, listen, when you see Hanik, tell her I'm sorry about how this went. Mm -hmm. 
And Kira's like, you're kind of assuming a lot, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And I felt like at that point, Verani was saying, we know how they're going to vote. I honestly felt like Verani was on the side of the, of the Skira. But he also, he's lived on Bajor. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. can't, he, he can't get a place to play music on Bajor anymore because they can't even get together to build that. Yeah. There's no way they're going to observe. And that's Bajoran. That is Bajor for the Bajorans. And they can't even get it together to do that. So he knows they're not going to let them be there. Yeah. I, I personally felt like he thought the Scria belonged there, but he knew it wasn't going to happen. And, and when, you know, when, when Hanik says Kira talked to them, told them, they're wrong. Then Kira says, well, I don't think they're, they are. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see any wavering anywhere from Kira at all in that whole thing. I think that Kira is somebody who could slash would actually, even if it's a simple matter of her friendship with Hanik, if there is anybody to be broken through to, it's her. But it's not the provisional government. It's not the two representatives who came up there. They were done. This was a decision. Finished. But Kira actually spent time with them. She actually got to know them. She actually formed a friendship with them. Like, I love the fact that we have that scene where they're laughing over the dress. Like, mm-hmm. you need a simple human, again, quote, unquote, human moment like that to show that there's a bond there. Um, but all of that, all of that, that personal connection gets pushed aside when the Bajoran government decides to make their decision. So I, I don't think any of that was easy for Kira. I think that Kira is crushed by, and I don't mean emotionally necessarily, but, but she is flattened by what that government says she can and cannot do. Look at how many times she's, she's butted heads with them anyway. I mean, and I guess that this sort of leads into the the, the only message, uh, not that there's really a message here like that, but this episode is saying that there's no easy answer, which is, as you pointed out before, very difficult because in Star Trek, there would be an easy answer for this. The easy answer is we got planets. We got so many planets, we don't know what to do with them, but... As a viewer, I would take away that there there is also an easy answer, but they didn't do that answer, which is to act with compassion, because there is not a lot of compassion shown in this episode to the Screens. Um, although, although I want to go back to a point that you made before that I wholeheartedly agree with, which is to say that the Bajorans are using their logic without compassion. But the Screens are using passion without logic. Uh, because I do not think it is a good idea to base important policy, like finding Quintana, on prophecy. That's simply not the way to make a decision where you have lives in the balance when you have opportunities beyond what you originally thought you had. So it, it's a very... Um, it, it, it's a message that sort of shoots itself in the foot. I will say really quickly, there were a couple of gems that I did like. I don't want people to think that I hate the episode. Um, sure. I'm frustrated by the episode. And now that you've told me that they actually decided on a happy ending, but then decided not, I I want to build a time machine and get somebody <laughs> else writing this show. But 
Um, there were a couple of gems that I liked. Um, Bajorans must reclaim their artistic heritage if they ever hope to regain their sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. I think what Verani is saying is absolutely right there. Um, maybe if Bajorans kept an eye on who it is they think they are, they would actually be that thing. Yeah. Um, and 50 years of Cardassian rule have made you all frightened and suspicious. I feel sorry for you. That's honestly probably one of the best lines in the whole thing. Yeah, you got hurt. Agreed. I yeah. get that. I get that you got hurt, but, you know, how are you going to come out of it? Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Check out the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com. Over there, you'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Trek Files. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Rivals. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at k-i-theory.com. I think it is great that Cisco found a place for the Skria. But seriously, how hard is it, to find a planet... Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.